Hey friend, I wanted to take two seconds off the top of the show today to thank you for what you've given me. More specifically, I started this show when I was in my kitchen in Oxford back in March, right after lockdown started. And what has happened in the last five or six months has been a transformation of a tiny little idea into a life raft. A creative outlet for me that has made my life so rich. And it wouldn't be there without you inspiring me and sending me correspondence to remind me that the stories that our wonderful storytellers are telling are touching you as much as they've touched me. So to each and every one of you, to those of you in Melbourne and Port of Spain and Riga and Yokohama and London and Paris and Toronto and Boston and Riverside. Thank you. Thank you so much for reminding me to reach for human kindness and human emotion. Um, I also wanted to give a little bit of a warning, and that is that in December, I'm going to be taking a break. The end of the first season should be around the first or second week of December. I need some time over the holidays, not only to spend some time with my wife and with Miles and Kate, but also to prepare for a pretty major professional engagement that I have going on in January. Don't worry though, I will be restarting the show in January and there are some fantastic guests lined up and hopefully some changes to the program that you'll be seeing and hopefully loving as much as I'm going to love making them. Finally, um, if I can make a request, one of the things I'd love for you to do if you enjoy the show is to go to www.volumenob.net and sign up for our mailing list. That will allow you to receive the newsletter that I write out to our listeners every month or so and hear not only advanced news on who's going to be on the show, but also some of the plans I've got for this community that we're building. Personal storytelling is about human connection. And one of the things I'd love for the volume knob to be is not only a source of that connection for people while they're locked up and while they're away and while they're separated, but also hopefully a place where we can, as a community, do concrete good and help organizations that are doing good in our communities. So get over to www.volumenob.net and sign up for that mailing list. Anyway, thanks for your patience. Let's get to the music. And welcome to another episode of The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, it's Julie and Night Shift. If you've listened to the way I end the show every week, you'll know that I always thank the guests for two things. Not only their time, but also their vulnerability. Because telling good stories requires bravery. And a special sort of bravery. It's not only about sharing the hard parts of your life experience, but it's about admitting that those hard parts were there in the first place. It's a struggle that I admire especially when the hard parts that the storyteller is talking about 
are unconventional or maybe hard to accept. Julie's story has that sort of bravery, kind of in spades. It's about the hard work that it takes to accept the good with the bad and the understanding that it takes to accept that the whole may be greater than and sometimes less than the sum of its parts. My name is Julie. I'm a 36-year-old nonprofit professional specializing in digital communications and organizational leadership. I'm a huge introvert and control freak, and I've chosen to live with my partner and his two children. And the song that saved my life is Night Shift by Lucy Dacus. Julie's story starts in the summer of 2014. It had only been a week since she and her last boyfriend had broken up, but her friends were encouraging her to get a Tinder account. They were eager for me to get back in the game because I always had the most exciting and crazy dating stories, which, which I did. Julie got on the app and started swiping. I spent maybe 15 minutes on the app and I swiped no. I don't remember if it's left or right. I swiped no on almost everyone except one. And then I closed the app and went about my day. And then later I got a notification that I had connected with someone. And that was, that was him, that was Dan. We messaged all night. We messaged that whole evening. And I remember that I was interested in maybe meeting up with him that night. And he couldn't because he had his two kids and he didn't have a babysitter. And I remember thinking, well, what a waste of time. It wasn't the end of the matter, however. Julie and Dan continued messaging. In that typically 21st century way, the conversation moved from the dating app to another app. And then he asked me if I would be up to up for meeting in person. And I said, well... I don't know, maybe. Uh, can we add each other on Facebook and then I can see if you're a weirdo or not? And so we, we added each other to Facebook and um, we messaged every single night that week until we didn't get much sleep. We messaged until like after midnight every single day. Eventually, the two of them watched a movie together in a way that kind of sounds like a preview of what dating would look like under COVID lockdown. We, we watched it. He watched it at his place. I watched it at mine. We hit play at the same time on our laptops. And then we just texted and messaged each other throughout the movie. On the Thursday, he went to a, a concert. He went to see Propaganda, And I had dinner with a friend. And he texted me, like, not on Facebook Messenger, but a text. And he was like... Oh, I'm thinking about you, and I hope you have a really nice evening with your friend. We hadn't even met yet, and I was like, oh boy, this already isn't casual anymore. We haven't even met, and this is already a serious relationship. Like, what is this? That weekend, they managed to make time to hang out in person at a Montreal brew pub. And so I think we got really tipsy really fast and we started making out in the bar in front of everyone enough so that the next day I was a little embarrassed you know I, I, I hope that I hadn't seen anyone that I knew like 
it was a little bit um, like juvenile or a little bit nostalgic. How like we just, you know, it was, we made a whole big scene of it. And basically from that point on, we were together. We got serious really fast and I, maybe a year in, his sister told me that when he met me, he said to her, oh my God, I want to tell her that I love her. And she was like, don't do that. You're gonna, th she's gonna think you're crazy. It's way too soon. And he was like, okay, okay, I won't. But then he lasted like an extra week. They were together for three years before Dan asked Julie to move into his house in the suburbs where he had full custody of his two kids from a previous relationship. So I said yes and I moved in. And even moving in wasn't a big deal. I, I moved in on a Friday, I booked my movers. He was at work, I did the whole thing myself. Uh, just, um, it, it wasn't a big deal. It, just more of my stuff was at his, in his house. And that we didn't even spend the night that night together. He had a board game night with his friends, and I had dinner with a, with another friend in Montreal. Like it was just, it was just a very normal thing us moving in together. Almost immediately, Julie began to notice that, despite all of the planning and the relative ease of the move itself, the transition was a lot more difficult for her than she'd bargained for. It took about at least an hour in public transit and more if it's raining or snowing, you know, every single day, morning and night. And this was the beginning of how difficult I found it. Every single day I found something to, to bellyache about and complain about. And every single day, it was just so much time, so much time spent commuting. And all this non-stop togetherness with, with him and his kids that I wasn't used to because even though I'm the like secondary parent and he, you know, the obligations aren't the same, it still wasn't as intense when we didn't live together. I could just so easily just not come over. Around the same time Julie had gone back to school, with that added work, the time Julie was getting for herself was shrinking fast. As a self-described control freak, the situation was starting to get to her. I felt so much older and so much more tired. I felt that I had negotiated us moving in together so well, but I had so underestimated every single aspect of me integrating this cellule, this cell that was already really jam-packed and just like me adding myself on in, into this. And I really underestimated how much space and how I need and how important it is for me to see myself around in my surroundings. And so little things that seem little, but we're not like the, their impact. We're not little doing my own, um, doing my own laundry and decorating some spaces that are not, that are according to my taste, F seeing some of my furniture around. And that was, that was a long, long process. Julie also had a significant struggle with the role of stepmom to Dan's two kids. 
it's not that she didn't want to do the right thing. It's just that they were other parts of the package that she hadn't adequately bargained for. There's not a there's not a big community of reluctant, ambivalent stepmothers or stepparents. Uh, a lot of mommy blogs and a lot of people who were all into it, and I just I just really wasn't. And I just wished I could find people to say things that are a little bit taboo, like. I, I know I should love them, but I, I don't really. I don't, you know, they're they're here and they come with it. They're a package deal with my partner, but I don't know. I, I feel like I should say that I love them, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like that I do. Like, I don't necessarily miss them when they're not here. I moved in with my partner. I didn't want to move in and have a relationship with them. So I found myself planning my social life around my alone time and straight through times where it would be family time. So whenever it would be dinner, the four of us, or any other family obligation, I happened to schedule all of my social obligations or work obligations throughout those times. It made sense to me. At the time, I, re I justified it to myself by saying, well, you know, this is, this is just self-care and this is just identifying that this is what I need. But then I started, you know, I, I realized that I'd been doing it a lot. Um, it was just all, I was outnumbered. My needs were outnumbered. Every, like, I felt like I didn't exist anymore as, as just myself in this house. I had, the fact that I had moved in with my partner meant I'm now a suburban stepmom. Um, yeah. You've got a nine to five, so I'll take I, I remember I started hearing this song on my Spotify playlist. And I loved the melody of it, and I loved it so much, and I just kept hitting repeat and repeat and repeat. It's, it's interesting because I would listen to this song on repeat during awful dead of winter, like February commutes where you leave your home at six in the morning and it's dark as night. And you leave work at four in the afternoon and it's dark as night again. And I would listen to the song on repeat and I would kind of not even realize I'm commuting this for this long. I would just like, my lizard brain was, would take over and I'm just, uh, I'm just making my way home but I was just transported by this, this, this song. But at the same time, if I had a, a, a night of alone time, by myself, I would also listen to this song and be like, oh, now I'm so cozy and I'm at home and I'm alone and there's nothing in the house except this song. It made time go back, go by quickly and slowly at the same time. But there's there's an element of escape in both situations, mm -hmm. right? 100%. 
And then like, months later, I realized that this is like this brutal breakup song. The lyrics in the song started to bother me because I really, I really noticed when she sang, you've got a nine to five, so I'll take the night shift. And I started feeling really guilty about how I'd been conducting myself. The more I listened to it, the, the kind of the more gross I felt about what I was doing. wondering, well, if this isn't sustainable, then what needs to change? For me, leaving was out of the question. I felt like I had met my person, but then could I envision myself diving into the stepmom role or life? No. Can I spend all my time avoiding spending time with the kids here and in playing that part? No. So I had to find a way to make it all work. Dan had noticed Julie's frustration and eventually he confronted her about it. And at one point Dan was like, look, you, you accepted you said yes. When I asked you to move in, you said yes. You accepted this. So you're either in or you're out, but I can't deal with all this anymore. This is a fact. This is where we live now. This is where I live, and this is where you've accepted to live. And this is where you work. So you can change where you live, you can change where you work, or you can change your attitude. And he was right. He was right. It was a very difficult ad adjustment for me, and I don't apologize for how difficult I found it. I regret, I regret how much I made my partner feel like it was like such an awful time here. One of the things that separates the kind of biographical stories that we tell from the movies is that our lives don't move in straight lines and along flat surfaces. There are curves and there are bumps. If Julie's story was a movie, there'd be some sort of transitional aha moment where she realized the solution to balancing all of her competitive roles. The one she wanted, like Dan's partner, and the ones that she knew she had to take, but felt less comfortable with, like suburbanite and stepmom. But there wasn't any magical catalyst in this story. Like a lot of people trying to make sense of things, she just muddled through, trying to and eventually making things better. Mm. You, um, you keep talking about it in the past tense though. So, huh. what's, what's changed? Like, 
have you come to terms? I think that the main thing that's changed is that's changed is my partner hasn't changed that much. His kids, I mean, okay, they're maturing, but instead of being six and seven, they're 10 and 11, which is another form of child, you know, awfulness. So they're just, they're preteens now, which is just, um, they're same behaviors, but with more sass. And so they haven't necessarily changed. That, that doesn't get better. I can, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> they just become more. It's the same thing, just more right. of it. So if my partner hasn't changed and we haven't moved, I'm at the same job. I'm still in school or I'm about to do some more school and the kids haven't changed, then that must mean that I've changed. And if I could pinpoint one thing. You've got a nine to five. So I'll take the night shift. I guess I could say two things. One, there's no better advocate for yourself than yourself. So if you don't say what you need and what you're expecting and what you want, no one's going to do that work for you. Not because they don't care, just because we're all tired. We all have our own shit to deal with. They're not going to do that work for you. Why would they? You need to do that work for you. And the other thing is, um, I've, to an extent, learned to just let things happen as they may and allow some, allow some chaos. Though I'm pretty sure Julie wouldn't want to go through it again, she tells me that that time isolating herself from Dan and the kids had some benefit. She was able to focus on her career and her studies in a way that she wouldn't have otherwise managed to, and she's now seeing the rewards in her career. The time passed, she's also seen some difference in her perspective on being a secondary parent. I'm reluctant to, you know, call myself a stepmom. I don't accept much praise when it comes to what I do at home because I feel like because I don't love every single aspect of it, I don't deserve any kind of praise and I feel guilty about my feelings, I feel guilty about my ambivalence. And to this day, I don't know if I fully embraced this role. What I do know is that I'm really, really important in the kids' lives. They may not look like me, but they are like me because we share, they have so many of the same values that I have and I know that that's something that comes from me and the time that we've spent together and I know how I have a positive impact you know with some perspective I um, I, I try to 
think about what I could have done to, you know, plan this better or anticipate this differently, I, I really don't see. I feel like I had to live it. Thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories and the power of music. It's produced by Semlevant Audio, and it's edited, written, mixed, and hosted by me, Kisiri. You can follow the show on Twitter at Volume Knob 1, that's the number 1, or on Instagram at Volume underscore Knob. My thanks to Julie for her time and for her vulnerability this week. Be sure to check out our website at www.volumenob.net for show notes to learn more about Lucy Dacus and her amazing album, Historian. Finally, my thanks to Miles for his 30-second review of Night Shift, which, to his mind, sounds a little bit like a David Lynch soundtrack. So, what'd you think? So, you know that part in movies where all hope seems lost, uh, the bad guys have won... And then the character says, you know what? I'm going to go back there and I am going to do something. I am going to win. It it kind of sounds like the part of the movie where the character is at first soaking off. Like, oh, we lost. There's no hope. I can't do this anymore. It's impossible. They've won. But then at the end of the song, it's more of... They've turned around their car, they're heading back to where the enemy is, and they're and they're ready to fight them with yeah. You know. <laughs> with what? With um I don't know. With each movie it's different. See you again next week on the volume knob for more stories about the songs that saved your life.